Look up idiots in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that Consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring the films of Bong Joon-ho, as recommended by filmmaker Jim Mickle, and in this week's episode, I'll be talking about Bong Joon-ho's sophomore feature, 2003's Memories of Murder. And before I go on, I do want to say something which is going to sound maybe a little bit glib, but it is genuinely sincere. I'm going to apologize ahead of time um, for any mispronunciation of of names or regions um, or anything that I kind of slip up when it comes to um, my bad American um, uh, pronunciation of Korean names um, as much as I like to believe I am the, you know, a, a, a very woke and aware person. I also must admit I am, I have a lot of blind spots when it comes to many cultures and languages and stuff. So I am, uh, I am going to do my best to try and um, be sincere and, and accurate with my pronunciations of some of these names and things, but I'm, I'm sure I'm going to screw them up. So um, I hope that if anyone is listening, they are not seeing or, or listening to this and, and interpreting that as I'm being kind of flippant towards another person's culture. It's more just I, I genuinely do not really know how to pronounce some of these names, so I'm going to try um, and do the best that I can. So having said that, let's get into the discussion of Memories of Murder, which as of um, the recording of this episode is ranked uh, number 192 on IMDb's top 250 films. Uh, you can take that with uh, as many grains of salt as you wish because it is all user-generated and uh, favors certain films over others in terms of how many ratings there are, um, but it, it is currently sandwiched in between um, Ingmar Bergman's Persona at 193 and uh, Wes Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel at 191. But um, this film did come out in 2003, which, um, if you think back on it, was actually a really good year for South Korean cinema. That was the same year that um, uh, Park Chan-wook put out Old Boy um, for the first time, and um, Kim Ki-duk put out Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring, which... Uh, you may recall, if you've been listening to this episode or, or this podcast for a long time, Kim Ki-duk was a filmmaker that I covered, a filmmaker whose work didn't really connect with me, though how much of that was or had to do with um, my being kind of worn down from doing the podcast is, is, is certainly up for debate. But of the three films that I covered for him, um, Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring was the one that, I, that resonated with me the most, the one that I, I still occasionally think about, the one that I remember the most um, thinking back on it from a, a while back. So, and this was a good year for, um, for South Korean films for kind of making an imprint on the cinematic landscape. And before I kind of get into a discussion of the film itself, I do want to talk a little bit about the background of, uh, or, or the context of, of the film, at least in the sense of why was this, uh, film set in the area that it was, and why did we set it in 1986? Um, I'm the kind of person that loves kind of exploring the the socioeconomic, um, really cultural context of any type of foreign language film, because to kind of understand a country's history um, really goes a long way to kind of understanding what may be imprinted on that film, whether consciously or subconsciously. But especially, you know, coming out in 2003, you could kind of make the argument that Memories of a Murder was a, a, a 
you know, period piece, I suppose, coming out in 19 or, or setting it taking place in 1986. And so I really wondered why that was. And so I did a little bit of research. And so I want to provide a little bit of context to that because I think it will help you appreciate the film a little bit more. It certainly helped me appreciate the film a little bit more. So um, it is um, loosely based on um, Korea's first serial murders in the entire history of its country. Um, it, it took place in the, I believe it's the uh, Hwasong um, in the Gyeonggi uh, province. That And these murders, I think there was about 20 people raped and murdered from 1986 to 1991. Um, the, the, uh, unlike in the movie, the real-life killer was actually caught, though, years after the fact, and uh, I believe was not actually convicted of the crimes until um, fairly recently, I believe, um, when he confessed to um, the crimes um after being caught for something entirely unrelated, actually. I mean, it was still a murder, but he, he murdered, I believe it was his sister-in-law or his half-sister, um, and then went to jail for that, actually, and then later on confessed to all these these murders that took place from um, 86 to 91. Um, if there's any um, uh, people who are familiar with South Korean culture and history or and or are true crime buffs, I apologize if I have... Um, misinterpreted... Not misinterpreted, but if I have gotten any of those facts wrong, but... Um, and then um, 1986, you know, what was happening in South Korea at the time, and once again, take this all with a grain of salt, I am an amateur historian in, in the utmost regards when it comes to this, but um, in South Korea, there there was a, a kind of a, a regime change thanks to a, a coup d'etat in 1979, and the, the regime that was put in place after that coup d'etat was basically a military regime um, that had very low support and trust from the public. Um, there was a lot of people, a lot of citizens in the country who were supporting um, student protests that were going on, especially um, after uh, a, an incident in January of 1987 um, when a Seoul uh, National University student actually died under police interrogation. So um, a very unpopular um, time for the, the military. There was a, a very a lot of distrust and kind of skepticism towards this, towards this regime as being authoritarian um, and militaristic. Um, and so that helps kind of explain a lot of the scenes that we'll see in Memories of Murder when it comes to um, the, the kind of the blackout drills or the civilians kind of having to shelter in place. And, and, and also just, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the riots or the protests of like when the military comes to town and just uh, this, this general this general distrust of authority figures and especially on an intimate scale, the police in this little village where these murders are taking place because um, the, the police are, you know, it, it's no secret that they are torturing people to get confessions. And um, it's just, you know, um, there, there's just a, a general distrust of authority, which is quite interesting because if you um, read the Vulture profile on Bong Joon-ho that I posted on the Facebook page um, when he was most specifically kind of talking about par uh, Parasite, they do kind of mention that he is a, a filmmaker that kind of um, uh, tells stories about the uh, the underdogs and fighting against the uh, authority figures. And what's interesting is in this film, our protagonists are the authority figures. But um, I'll get into that a, a little bit later. I did want to follow up on the point of the of the the protests and the distrust of the military um, by reading from an excerpt of um, uh, uh, Roger Ebert's website. <laughs> I'm I'm always. Um, Harkening back to uh, Roger Ebert's website, of course, um, but they, they have a, um, a column called Far Flung Correspondence, and this one is from a piece called A South Korean Zodiac by uh, Seongyang uh, Cho, who writes this, and I will, of course, link to this article on the Facebook page, so do uh, keep an eye out for that, but um, she says... 
The South Korean police were one of the swords owned by the military dictatorship during that time, and if they wanted, it was a piece of cake for them to turn into to turn you into a criminal or even worse, a North Korean spy. If there was a will, there were always many, many ways ready for them, and they gladly used them. So that's a bit of historical context as to what was going on at the time, why and why this film was kind of set where it was and why it was, because you did have this general distrust of the military, and especially in this small kind of rural village, um, a general kind of skepticism towards people from the city, towards um, people who kind of might come to their area with sort of a, a that, that inherent sort of air of superiority if you will. Um, and, and so that, that's really interesting. And, and, and it's, it's funny because Memories of Murder is, in a way, it's a, it's a, a story that's a relatively, it, it's relatively simple in its concept, um, at least in the sense of that we've seen, you know, in America, plenty of films like this. I mean, there's, obviously, there's, there's a reason that this article was called A South Korean Zodiac, and there's obviously reasons why it's being paralleled to that film. Um, but its execution is so unique, even if as a story it's relatively simple. And, and it's so unique because of, of Jun Ho's direction. Um, as I mentioned in, in that Vulture profile, um, it really is... Um, here's a filmmaker who is telling stories about the underdog battling against uh, authority figures, but in Memories of Murder, the characters we're following are the authoritarian forces. I mean, right from the get-go, we see um, uh, Detective Park, who is... I, I guess it's fair to say that if you want to consider him to be a bad guy, he is. I mean, he is very clearly um, bringing an agenda to the case that he's um, that he's uh, in investigating. I mean, these rapes and these murders. He is. He kind of has an idea of of who he thinks the killer is, or more accurately, who the killer should be, and he is trying to fit suspects into that mold and into that frame. He is torturing people to try and get confessions out of them false confessions but confessions that kind of wrap up this case um and these people they're they're you know uh, they're not anti-heroes but they're complex you know when we think of an anti-hero we think of someone who is kind of mostly bad but has some good redeeming traits um and so it's still there is still kind of a black and white approach to them um with like kind of a, a little bit of gray in between you know we kind of have this Venn diagram of morality, where in the middle it's sort of like, well, here's where we can relate to this character, and yet the characters in Memories of Murder um, are much more complex. They're kind of all gray because they are a bit more realistic as people. Um, the emotional stock of Detective Park rises as the film goes along, whereas the stock of Detective So kind of falls, um, and they kind of even each other out in the sense of what we think of them and how we're rooting for them and kind of where our respect for them ultimately falls because of how the forces of the case are affecting them. So they are the authority figures, but in a way they're still battling a, 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 a force or an authority that's above them, which is this mystery of this case and this kind of pressure that they have to solve it. Not necessarily from the outside, but just, you know, that they bring to it. They themselves are kind of the underdogs in the sense of this is in ways like an unsolvable mystery. Like there is no way for them to really figure it out. And yet they're battling against that anyway. And you eventually see how the pressure affects these people and how the cracks kind of start um, revealing themselves and slowly kind of um, not necessarily breaking them, but certainly kind of bringing them onto an even playing field, as I say. Um, there, in the end, uh, I mean, there are these atrocious things happening to women in and around this village and and yet everyone because of this everyone becomes a victim there's this trickle down effect in the sense of um there are the murder victims or the rape victims and and 
by taking on this case, these detectives also become victims of this mystery that they are incapable of solving. And it's not necessarily because of a lack of intellect, because they're goofy or incompetent, but just because a series of factors which seem to be beyond their control, that they are just incapable of solving this mystery, and they become victims of that. Um, and the film does feel hopeless at certain times. I mean, especially kind of at that, not that very end scene, but the, the scene when they, when they have who they believe or who so uh, wants the perpetrator to be, and Park ends up letting him go. Even at that moment when everyone is kind of emotionally confused and lost the film can feel hopeless but it never feels bleak and that is once again i think because of june ho's direction um rather than fluctuating between different tones he actually i think instead skillfully blends them together um in the sense of what i mean is it's not like we have a slapstick comedy scene immediately followed up by a scene of of intense or severe darkness or or extreme violence but they all kind of exist together with each other in the same scene within the same people even um and, and, and it's like, I mean, so for instance, we have sort of like um, a, a dour party or, or like a really sad, pathetic karaoke party interrupted by the sleeping chief waking up and just suddenly puking into a bucket. Um, or um, a dinner conversation about the, cape is, uh, about the case is interrupted by um, a man who suddenly just kind of tumbles out of a closet where he seemed to be sleeping. Um, and then tensions, these, these scenes of tension, of interrogation, kind of like eventually burst into this unrepentant violence. Um all of these exist within the same scene, within the same sequence. There are many different moods that kind of blend together because these things exist within people. A person is not just always one thing or the other. And even when it comes to American anti-heroes like, you know, Tony Soprano or Walter White or, um, you know, or any type of like kind of comic book here you may even want to think about, um, they don't just like, you know, like they're not just they're not just hard asses. Then all of a sudden, like oh, I I saved a child from the river, or um, you know, or is a super nice guy who also um, snaps and murders somebody. It's not it's not a, a pendulum swing between one mood and the other. They all exist within each other, and they all still exist even at the very end or or instead things kind of start to get exacerbated as the the tension and the pressure of this case starts cracking down on people um it's interesting to me because the laughter isn't meant to make light of the violence but the darkness also isn't meant to cancel out the levity um Junho seems to know that these moods and these things exist simultaneously like i said not just within people but within a scene, I mean, if you think of that first, that first scene, or uh, when when Detective Park is um, in out in the field, um, and he can't, you know, the forensics team hasn't showed up yet, so he's trying to clear the crime scene, and he's just so upset, and he's yelling at people. It's this wonderful scene. It's this wonderful tracking shot where uh, they're kind of following him through the field up onto the road and back in, and there's something that's sort of darkly comic about his anger, how he's yelling at the tractor to stop and the tractor doesn't stop and runs over the only piece of evidence that he had, the footprint in the mud, and then how you keep seeing the forensics people showing up and tumbling down this hill one at a time. And it's it's goofy, but it's also angry at the same time. And it's sort of, I, I felt like I kind of had to laugh at the buffoonery because if not, I was I was going to feel like, 
this case was completely hopeless or this guy was in, was entirely incompetent. He shows that he's an authority figure, that he is trying to be in command, but also at the same time it's showing how there are so many forces that he can't control. And in it, that scene in itself is sort of a microcosm of how the rest of the film is going to go. That despite the best intentions, despite how good or skillful these detectives are, there are things that are going to be beyond their control that are going to sabotage them on the path to trying to solve this case. Um, Detectives Park and Cho uh, um, are, are not bastions of morality, but you also do get a very clear sense that they genuinely would say that their dubious methods are meant for a greater good. Like if, you know, if you were to sit down, not with these actors, but with these characters and press them on why they're doing it, I do get the sense that they would generally say that, like, they are doing this for the good of the people, to bring peace, to, to, to help just people move on from this emotional trauma. Now, that doesn't excuse what they're doing. I mean, what they are doing is not just torturing people, but they're also torturing, at one point, a, you know, um, a mentally handicapped man. Um, they torture a, a very innocent man who just kind of has a sexual fetish, um, which is foreign to them but not harming anybody but they are torturing these people to try and get confessions out of them that is shitty horrible thing to do it's not excusable but you also don't get the sense that they're doing it because they're corrupt they're not on the take you know they're not doing this because there's a a shadowy bureaucracy who is pressuring them to kind of sweep things under the rug you know, this isn't like the Red Riding trilogy where it's sort of um, there's all these nefarious things happening that are sort of a, um, a the result of sort of a, a debaucherous cabal that's sort of in charge of this this region. There's none of that going on. It's just it's people reacting against forces that they feel like they can't naturally compete against or that they can't overcome on their own. So they're going to do what they can. They're going to use the tools at their disposal to try and solve the case. And you have Detective So come in from Seoul and he is, he has this objective mindset. You know, he says like the, you know, it's something like, you know, the, the documents don't lie. Basically he kind of has this scientific approach to things. Like we are going to follow the evidence. We're going to follow the leads and that's going to get us to where we're going to go. And then you have Detective Park who instead is kind of following emotion and what he believes and what he feels. You know, he has this thing at the beginning. It's this wonderful book into the film that he can look into someone's eyes and see their intention or he can know um, if they did it or what they feel. You have these two opposites to the same coin who are coming at the case from very radically different approaches. And yet at the end of the day, neither of them are able to solve this case and where they ultimately find solidarity in each other where they ultimately find relation in each other is not in i understand where your heart is coming from or hey i understand where your brain is coming from but instead fuck man neither of us can solve this we are we are victims of the same consequences we are all subject to the same fates and it's, like I said, it can feel hopeless, but it doesn't get bleak because of this recognition of how emotions and a motley array of emotions exist within each other and how they all can kind of complement each other, supplement each other, and also at the same time contradict each other. You know, we are invested, we are emotionally invested in these detectives despite our reservations about them. And it's not just an emotional skill 
um, or, or an emotional complexity that um, Jun Ho brings to this film, but also his filmmaking techniques and the way that he is able to not just evoke um, tenderness and empathy out of you, but how he's also able to get your heart pumping with, I mean, the, the foot chase through the, through the village when they, um, when they see the, the man at night and he is, um, you know, masturbating on the woman's underwear and they think they've caught the perpetrator and they're chasing after him and they're going through the, it's an exciting foot chase. It gets your heart pumping. And you, you really do get the sense that these guys are busting their ass. It's like, this is, we need to chase this guy down. This is it. This is the one that we need, that we've been looking for. And the nighttime um, rain attack on the woman who is kind of um, walking through the cornfield to try and get to the factory or to the mill. And you see the kind of the killer pop his head out in the background and, and then duck down very slowly. It's a terrifying chilling scene you have within this film some horror some action some melodrama some comedy and it all blends together in such a fantastic pastiche of a film i'm not opposed to anti-heroes i mean i i don't want you to think that i love the sopranos i love breaking bad i, I love um watchmen but What's interesting is that Bong Joon-ho isn't creating these characters as kind of like, um, you know, little slivers of gray. They are all gray because that's how people are. And yet, as is um, typical of, uh, of, of the South Korean revenge uh, subgenre, which this is not part of, but what I was reminded of when I was watching this film was that idea of how um, something like I Saw the Devil you have a protagonist who starts down a path because of, you can say, the best intentions or basically how he is trying to balance an, an injustice or, or, or a wrong that he has seen done in the world. And yet it leads him down this path, which is, at the end, arguably worse than where he started. He is morally and emotionally in a place that is worse than where he started. We see that same danger in Detective So. And yet we have Detective Park, who is balancing him out, who is the one who is trying to talk him out of killing this perpetrator without evidence, who is who understands, hey, I know, I know what you're feeling, man. I want to catch this guy, too, but this isn't the right thing. And it's not an easy decision. And it also doesn't lead us to any easy answers. There is no real resolution to this movie. Uh, John August, um, a screenwriter who is, I guess, most famous for working with uh, Tim Burton um, a lot. He, he wrote the screenplay for uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. He wrote the screenplay for Go. Um, I don't know if he still has it, but he used to have a podcast and a blog in which he would kind of give screenwriter advice. And I remember him saying something years ago about how there are two places where a screenplay can end. The first place is where most end, which is at the narrative's natural conclusion. You know, it can't go any further. We have reached a conclusion. We've reached a resolution. This story is done. Or we've reached a point where if the narrative were continue, we would just repeat everything that we've already seen. That this is just kind of the, the end. We've gotten back to the beginning of the circle. And if we move forward, we're just going to keep going in the circular motion. And that's not exactly a one-to-one -one correlation in where memories of a murder or memories of murder ends. But you do get the sense that if the film was going to continue, 
instead of jump ahead, you know, um, a few, you know, a few years to, to Detective Park, who is now um, a salesman of it, of it looks like electronic juicers. But if we were to continue in that last scene, just the very next day, instead of years later, you get the sense of it's just, it's going to be them doing the same thing. Futilely trying to catch this guy fighting against a, 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 a system or a force or something that they are so woefully incapable of resolving. And so we experience all these emotions. We experience the story in this way because they experience all those emotions because they've experienced the story this way. The perpetrator has escaped, but you could argue that Detective So still has his soul and that Detective Park has regained his if you truly felt like he ever lost it. And yet it feels like a hollow victory. And I, and I, I go back and forth about that because it's, it's sort of good that... Detective Park, who was our entryway, our, our surrogate into this world, has kind of gone through that arc. And it's, and it's him, it's his look, it's his face, it's his character that ends this film. It's great that he has kind of come around, but it's also in that last scene, in that last shot, you know it's going to stick with him forever. It's going to haunt him forever. You know, we, we've experienced enough with these guys that we kind of know this is not something they're ever going to forget, no matter where they move to, no matter what job they move on to. This is something that was always going to last for them because it was such a complex, deep, felt experience because of all the emotions that they went through, because of all the emotions that we went through. It is kind of the scenes like we, we do kind of have to laugh because of how there is just so much shit out there that we just can't really combat. And yet there's also the reminder that like it's not, you know, it's not all wine and roses. There there is some serious shit that we have to get down to here. It was a really wonderful film. It's one of those films that I, I certainly liked when I saw, but the more I thought about it and the, the more kind of space that I took from it, the more I, I actually really appreciated. Um, shortly after I was done, I texted friend of the show, Tim Buell, who has been on to talk about South Korean revenge films, and just told him, like, I got to check out more South Korean cinema, man. This stuff is great. If uh, you have been so inspired to rewatch uh, or watch it for the first time, um, it is free um, if you have a Prime membership. Or it's a, there's, a, there's a streaming service called Popcorn Flicks, which I thought was kind of a joke. Um, I clicked on it, and I haven't explored it in too much detail, but it seems really kind of interesting. It's one of those that it doesn't have a very big catalog, and it, it has a lot of shit in there. You're going to find Chuck Norris movies in there. You're going to find B-horror films from the 1950s. You're going to find stuff like Mosquito Man, which is a movie I didn't even know existed until I went in there in Popcorn Flicks. But considering it's, it's October and Halloween is coming up, you're also going to find these things. Oh, I should, and before I get into it, I should preface and say Popcorn Flicks is free. It seems like it's a free streaming service that is ad-supported, so you're going to have to sit through a commercial or ads every now and again, but you don't need a membership. You can just go on Popcorn Flicks, spelled with an X, of course, and you can watch these movies. The original Suspiria. Uh, the original Black Christmas. Peeping Tom. David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers. Um, David Cronenberg's Shivers. 
And if you're not, and if you're not uh, uh, too into the horror genre, and you're like, I want some classy foreign films like this one, it's got Werner Herzog, Strozek, Fitzcarraldo, and Aguirre, The Wrath of God, which are also coincidentally the three films that I covered when I covered Werner Herzog on this podcast as well. So once again, I haven't explored this service too much in detail, but it seems like there's some really cool shit there that all you have to do is just sit through a few ads. It's popcorn flicks. So popcorn flicks and Prime if you want to watch Memories of Murder for free. Um, or you can certainly pay for um, a rental or a purchase on Amazon, on YouTube, on iTunes, and on Google Play. I want to know what you thought of this film. I want to know what you uh, think of Bong Joon-ho. And it's easy enough to do. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. Tweet at me at NolanFixesTeeth. Um, you can catch up on back episodes of I Do Movies Badly, of course, on BattleshipRetention.com. If you go to the podcast drop-down menu and find I Do Movies Badly, or you can go to IDoMoviesBadly.Podbean.com. Since it is October and it is relatively new, I'm also going to continue to plug uh, my second podcast that just started, The Cast of Cthulhu in which I converse with a friend of the show, James McCormick, about the cinematic adaptations of weird fiction author H.P. Lovecraft. Um, as of the posting of this episode, we've still only got the introductory episode up, the pilot, kind of letting you all know what we're going to be doing with the podcast. It's going to be a bi-weekly podcast, but pretty soon, and I, by pretty soon I mean probably by tomorrow, we're going to have the first episode up in which we review um, Stuart Gordon's 1985 adaptation of Reanimator. And then shortly before Halloween, we're going to be following that one up with a, um, an episode tackling the, both of the sequels, um, 1989's Bride of Reanimator and 2003's Beyond Reanimator. So that's the cast of Cthulhu, um, C-T-H-U-L-H-U, uh, Cthulhu cast on uh, Twitter. We still, as of this recording, like I said, don't have a Facebook page, sorry, but you can find us um, on iTunes on Podbean um, as well. So that's the Casa Cthulhu. So thanks for uh, for listening to this one. Thanks for listening to me uh, ramble a little bit at the end there. Be sure to tune in next week where I will be covering Bong Joon-ho's The Host and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.